Hey everyone, AJ Venegas back, the director of Life Groups and Discipleship, here to talk to you today about how you are God's centerpiece. Yesterday, we had the joyous task of analyzing the ancient Near Eastern culture of Israel. Fun, right? We learned that the Bible is an ancient document that wasn't necessarily written to us, but was preserved for us. This means that the Bible is a collection of scrolls written to ancient Israel to help them understand God according to their own context. We read this text thousands of years later to discern what God was trying to say to them in order to draw out different principles that the Bible has for us. This is why we dove into the mythological stories and creation accounts that surrounded God's people in the ancient Near East to see what thoughts were influencing the Hebrew culture at the time the words of the Lord were received. We learned that our key phrase for this series, the image of God, was in fact a title reserved primarily for kings, whereas the rest of humanity was destined to menial labor designed to appease the pantheon of oftentimes violent Babylonian and Egyptian gods. The Bible confronts this cultural narrative head on and teaches that you are more than the identity that any worldly culture offers. In fact, you are God's centerpiece. Today, we jump into Genesis 1 to explore the Bible's origin story and the Bible's use of the phrase, the image of God. So, Let's start from the beginning, shall we? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. But here's a challenge for you. Stop and think of any images that come to your mind when you hear this verse. Now, when you heard the phrase, in the beginning, were you thinking about all the debates over when exactly this beginning could have occurred? Did you happen to have images of outer space and galaxies running around your head when thinking about the heavens? Or did you think of that beautiful imagery of the blue round globe when thinking about the earth? You know, this tended to be the images that I received when I came to Genesis 1-1. But let me point out that if this is the case for you, my mind has already brought images and debates to this ancient text that are, in fact, actually derived from relatively modern scientific discoveries. From the very first words of the Bible, which, remember, was written for us and not necessarily to us, we typically favor a contemporary scientific materialistic analysis and neglect the exercise of trying to step into the shoes of an ancient audience. In his transformative book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, John Walton points out that, quote, Through the entire Bible, there is not a single instance in which God revealed to Israel a science beyond their own culture. No passage offers a scientific perspective that was not common to the old world science of antiquity. Instead, if we follow the sense of the literature and its ideas of creation, we find that people in the ancient Near East 
didn't think of creation in terms of making material things. Instead, everything is function-oriented. The gods are beginning their own operations and are making all of the elements of the cosmos operational. Creation thus constituted bringing order to the cosmos from an originally non-functional condition. It's from this reading of the literature that we may deduce functional origins rather than accounts of material origins. Consequently, to create something or cause it to exist in the ancient world means to give it a function, not necessarily material properties. Now, I know that's a long quote, but let me show you how this practically plays out as we continue to read Genesis 1 and the origin story the Bible has to offer. Genesis 1 verse 2 says that, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, when we read these verses, are we supposed to be asking ourselves, you know, where did these elemental darkness and waters actually come from if God had not created any material yet? Or are we supposed to recognize that this is a direct threat against the Babylonian Enuma Elish that we talked about yesterday? If Tiamat was the goddess of the ocean, the Bible is telling us that the spirit of the king of kings and the lord of lords was in control, hovering over this body of water and darkness the entire time and would eventually bring order to what was typically seen as chaos and war. These kind of back and forth questions continue as we approach day one, in which God created the light by separating it from the darkness. Now, Are we called to focus on the material aspects of light, these photons that are cast out by our sun, which most scholars have noted, has yet to be made? Or are we to see that this God of the universe is beginning to organize this formless and empty world by separating light from the chaotic darkness and embedding the world with functionality, with time that's necessary for human flourishing? Let's keep asking these types of questions. On day two, God separates the waters in the expanse of the sky with the waters below. Okay, so now here, are we supposed to be focused on what this expanse above is supposed to mean scientifically? Or can we look beyond the material aspects and see that the God of the universe continues to organize this empty and formless world by embedding climate? which is necessary for human thriving and overthrows thoughts of lesser gods who would have controlled the weather in ancient thought. Okay, finally, on day three, God separates the land from the waters and brings forth vegetation. I hope you're catching the pattern here. Are we supposed to speculate when exactly and at what point in time this material of our earth emerged? Or better yet, what does it actually mean that nothing material on day three was ever created? It was just separated. Or are we called to rejoice that the God of the universe is again organizing this earthly realm to bring forth vegetation, to function as food designed for the welfare of humanity? If the earth was, in fact, formless, days one and three 
formed the world and prepared it functionally. And yet the beginning of Genesis suggests that the earth was also empty. And sure enough, God's creative works on days four, five, and six precisely fill the realms created on days one, two, and three. Check this out. On day four, God creates the sun, moon, and stars to fill the realms created on day one. The sun and the moon, along with the stars, were explicitly called to rule over the day and the night in order to govern this thing that we call time in the heavenly skies. On day five, God creates the birds of the air and the fish of the sea to fill the expanse and the waters created on day two. Then, on day six, God creates living creatures to fill the land separated from the waters on day three. However, one thing was still missing. The birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the creatures on the dry land had no one to rule over them. Which brings us to humans, the second act of creation on day six. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Now, I ask you, Is the text here more interested in explaining the material composition of the human body or the specific processes that contributed to human existence? Or is the text more interested in explaining why humanity was created in the first place? These are two completely different questions. Science can tell you how a cup of, let's say, Cafe Four Coffee is made what bean the barista used, what went into making the froth, and maybe speculate as to when and where the cup was made. But as John Walton points out, all of the ancient origin stories of the time were far more interested in why the cup of coffee was made. And it just so happens that there is really only one person who holds that answer, the barista behind the counter of Cafe Four. And so in the same way, the creator of life itself is telling us that humans have been created for two important reasons. First, no longer is the king the sole image bearer of God. You and I, by virtue of being human, have been endowed with this tremendous dignity, worth, and honor because our identity is an image bearer of God. Second, no longer are we consigned to menial labor to simply appease the gods. Instead, all humans have been called to rule. What this entails? Well, that's what we'll continue to unpack in this series. But for now, I hope these first two episodes, although they have been very meaty and dense, have set you up to see that being created in the image of God gives you tremendous dignity, worth, value, and purpose as a human being. Because on this earth, you're not an afterthought. You're not the result of warring gods. You're not consigned to menial labor. Instead, you are God's centerpiece. 
we'll dive into this more throughout the series. But for now, we are only left with the seventh day in which God rests. Are we to assume that the almighty God got tired? Or can this functional interpretation of Genesis shed new light on this mysterious seventh day? It turns out that according to ancient literature, the rhythms of seven days and the resting of a deity was often used to speak of the inauguration of a deity inside of his temple. And so if this is true, then God resting in the temple on the seventh day is another way of saying that God has finished the work and has now taken his throne to govern as the world operates according to its nature. Let me use this example. It's almost as if the Bible is saying all of the material computer component parts have been assembled. The battery has been plugged into a power source. And now it's time for the owner to operate the computer. And dear listener, you are at the center of what God wants to do in this world. You are God's centerpiece.